This is Kyle Hartung from Jobs for the Future, or JFF, and this is the Building Equitable Pathways podcast. In this series, leaders from across the country working at the intersection of K-12 education, post-secondary education and training, and workforce development will share their insights and perspectives grounded in practice to shed light on the why and the how of identifying and dismantling inequitable structural and systemic barriers to improve educational and career outcomes for youth. The Building Equitable Pathways Initiative was born out of the proposition that diversity, equity, and inclusion should be the North Star in pathway systems building, and a series of hypotheses about the role of intermediaries in supporting such efforts. Our work grew to include new questions about how intermediaries can be agents of and facilitators of systems change. And we were curious, how might we leverage their superpowers to create the conditions for change and drive toward more equitable outcomes. In this episode, our season two finale, we'll reflect on creating those conditions for change at scale. We'll consider the evolution of the role of intermediaries and think about what that means for the future role they can and should play in centering equity in pathways systems. To help with this, I have the pleasure of talking with two powerhouse leaders in our pathways work, and some of the original architects of the Building Equitable Pathways Initiative. Hi there, my name is Amy Lloyd. I am the Assistant Secretary of the Office of Career, Technical, and Adult Education here at the U.S. Department of Education. Hi everyone, Issa Ellis, Senior Program Officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Issa Ellis, Amy Lloyd, thank you both so much for joining me for this conversation today. We started talking about and shaping this work together almost five years ago. And I'm really excited to close out this season with your thoughts as folks who've really seen the full arc of our work to date and have been considering the implications of this work and the need for this work really from a national perspective. So to kick things off, I'd really like for the listeners of this podcast to understand more about your own origin stories. What is at the heart of your commitment and your passion to building equitable pathways? So why this work? Why this work now? Issa, would you get us started? Happy to start. So my origin story, I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. I had an opportunity to go to a really great public high school in New York. I had all these aspirations about where I wanted to go for post-secondary education. And at the end of the day, I decided to go where it was most affordable for me and my family. I was able to get a really good education at the school that I went to, I went to a state university in New York. Although a good education, it just wasn't a good fit for me personally. Ended up completing my coursework in three years because I just wanted to get out of there as soon as possible, to be quite honest. And then when I left there, I worked in New York City for about a year. And then I came across a fellowship that would allow me to get my master's in public administration and sent me to Chicago, what was going to be nine months. And I ended up staying for 12 years. And that was how I got into education. (laughs) And what was so interesting about that is that for me, I am so grateful that I had a family support system that provided me with the safety net to be able to go to a school, even though it wasn't a school of my choice. And I was able to get a quality education, but it never felt right. And then I ended up going online and finding this program and applying to the program. It took a lot of agency. Like it took a lot of me 
actively looking online. And it wasn't because I had family members who knew to guide me on a particular path. I had a community of people supporting me, but I didn't have a community of people of adults who actually were saying, you should try this and consider this. It really took a lot of me having to navigate and make some choices on my own. And I had a safety net of family to catch me if I made some poor decisions or tried and some things didn't work out. And when I started working in education, I was really thinking about like, what if all young people had a support system and didn't have to depend on their 18, 19, 20 year old selves to figure things out? Right. What if young people had a system that was already designed to catch them and provide them with navigational skills, support to figure out what was next and had the social capital, right, of people around them to really like say, you know, I have this internship here or I have this experience here that you should try out. And I I didn't have that experience and I don't think I'm special by any means. I think a lot of young people are trying to figure out life for themselves. And I just wonder what would have been different if I'd had intentional supports in high school, intentional supports in post-secondary when it wasn't the right fit for me as opposed to trying to leave school early. I don't fully always believe in luck, but I do feel like to some degree it was luck in, in some people and faith, right, that I ended up where I ended up. And I don't feel like that should be the case for young people. So for me, what motivates me is like, how do we systematize this so that all young people have access to good information so that they can make good choices and then they have a support system of adults who can help them make good decisions along the way rather than hoping and praying and depending on luck to ensure that things will work out. Thank you for that, Isa. Amy, what about you? Where does your commitment and passion, where's the origin of that for you? Oh, that's a big question, Kyle, but thank you so much for asking it. And I do believe that who we are and where we come from really does shape how we work all of us are only here today because of the generations of people who came before us since time immemorial and also the people in our lives now. The work that we're doing is on behalf of all the future generations to come. And so I think about how each of us carries with us so many different communities. And I often talk about how we carry our ancestors with us in all that we do, whether we're aware of it or not. And I've loved some memes that I've seen over the past couple of years. Like I, Maybe you've seen one that says, we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. I've seen another that I love that says, walk into every room as if your ancestors opened the door for you. And then I was at a a tribal school last year and saw a teacher had hung outside the classroom a big sign that said, have you made your ancestors proud today? And so that's what I hope to do in my work and in my life. And I imagine and honor the many people and places that we all collectively represent. And I frankly like celebrate the complexity of my own identity. I'm Native American and I'm also Latina and white, or more specifically, I'm Zuni and I'm old school Hispanic from Spanish conquistadores in New Mexico. And I'm Mexican American and I'm Irish American. And I was adopted before the enactment of the Federal Indian Child Welfare Act or ICWA, which is a law that protects Native children and keeps them with Native families. It was just upheld by the Supreme Court. Very excited about that. And it was created in response to the mass removal of Native children from families and communities, which started a long time ago with the Indian boarding school era. I was raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Zuni, my tribe, is one of the most traditional tribes in New Mexico, but I was not raised in the culture. And so I continue to work every day to learn about and connect with and live my heritage. And I'm grateful that my parents and their ancestors, frankly, opened the door to the room in which I now stand, right? Like they are 
both educators. My mom was a special education teacher and a speech and language pathologist. My dad, who's from an Oklahoma tribe, was a he was a business CTE teacher, a history and civics teacher. He was a founding instructor at a tribal college in Albuquerque. And I think about how education serves so many different purposes for different people. And I've been grateful to have this like fierce both and orientation with respect to like needing to make sure that education, not just through my own trajectory, but for all students, has both rigorous academics and powerful career-connected learning. I've been rooted in two core values in my work in education, and one is self-determination. It's basically a precept that's grounded in tribal sovereignty, but I think about what self-determination means in people's lives or in our communities. Like Education is ultimately about giving people meaningful choices. And then the other core value that I really love and hold on to is this notion of interdependence. And I often say when I talk about my work here at the Federal Department of Education that I work at the interdependence of education, workforce development, and economic development. And frankly, our communities are inherently interdependent. And I think about Dr. King's notion that we're all caught in this inescapable web of mutuality and we're all connected and our role is to help each other be our best selves. So I think about self-determination, interdependence, and I, I think about much like what Issa was describing, how I received very little to no career information or advising throughout my own educational trajectory. And my parents knew that education was the ticket to the middle class, was the pathway to the future. We had this four-year college or bus mentality that is so pervasive still in so many mindsets across our country. And yet I was halfway through my four-year degree and realized that I had no sense of what my future would hold. I was running low and out of money, and I had to take time off in order to work full-time and save and earn some money for school and life. And I, I then went to two different community colleges. I went to one to obtain a workforce credential, so I got my EMT license so I could work as an emergency medic. And I went to the other to take affordable general education and CTE classes related to a field that I was considering pursuing at the time, which was medicine. And so that's why I love this work of Pathways. I'm excited about our work to support students to explore their possible futures through career and technical education, through rigorous both and career and college pathways, and think about how we can help young people much earlier than when they get halfway through a four-year credential realizing they didn't have their footing underneath them like I did, much earlier start to really get hands-on, hearts-on, minds-on in different possible pathways that they can pursue recognizing that pathways are nonlinear these days and young people are going to change their minds, change their occupations, change their industry sectors many times over their lifetime. And I finally did come back and finish my four-year degree, which I appreciate and value, but it took taking some steps back from it to really reground myself in the power of career-connected learning to help me figure out who I was and where I wanted to go. Everything Amy said resonated with me. I just remember when I decided to go back to school for the first time, I knew that my undergraduate degree wasn't going to be enough. And so I decided that I needed to go back to school and I needed to pursue a master's degree through a fellowship program, a cohort-based fellowship program, which then opened doors for me. But again, it was like 30 people in this fellowship program. So it just made me think, imagine if many more people had access to a program. I didn't realize like social capital was relational. Wow. I thought it was through credentials, to be quite honest. I thought credentials mm -hmm. would open doors for me. And I realized credentials alone would not open doors for me. I didn't have relationships. And so I went back to school again because that, in my mind, that's what you had to do. In order to get relationships, I had to go back to school. I had to pay for another degree at a very particular school, which meant at that point that I took out more loans because I had to pay 
to get access to networks that will then open up and accelerate my career path. It's the things you don't know when you don't have information and you're trying to make sense of all the things to navigate a fruitful career on your own. But just imagine if those things were all built into a system and and young people had access and can choose paths that made the most sense for them. Right. Or like you said before, like relying on on luck. Yes. Right. Yes. Or, or hoping that some luck shows up. Yes. And that you get to benefit from that. Amy, you introduced this word, an idea of interdependency, rather not just the intersectionality of that. I, I love that. And there was another word that came up as I was hearing you both talk around this, this sense of self-determination. And I see that as being really interwoven with agency. So intermediaries have long been a key lever in our collective work to establish and build pathway systems. And they've long served roles as conveners and coordinators and sometimes really supporting youth accessing work-based learning. But even with such a longstanding presence in the field, they remain largely invisible, underutilized, underfunded. And so we began this work and this conversation with this series of hypotheses that they can and need to be more. And I think that that more was really born out of a spirit of what if we systematized these approaches that ensure that young people develop the agency and the capital they need to access the life that they want for themselves, to support their families, to contribute healthily to their community. And so Issa, to continue with where you were, you've had close eye on this work and deep relationships with so many of our partners in this community practice. When you reflect back on where this community began and where it is now, what would you name as some of the key learnings that you've seen emerge that are really important for others to consider? I will say four years ago, almost five years ago, I did not know that we would be as a foundation doubling down on the role of intermediaries. As we talked to other foundations, as we talked to researchers, as we talked to Amy, I mean, we talked to everyone. As we talked to you, Kyle, I mean, we were talking to everyone that would, you know, <laughs> let us ask a whole lot of questions. And we were trying to figure out what value we as a foundation, what value can we specifically add to a space that was really emergent for us? We had not really made investments in that space. And so it was really an exploratory portfolio as we spoke to experts and researchers and practitioners. We heard a lot of the same things in terms of you need to invest in policy or you need to invest in specific programs and you need to invest in organizations who are trying to connect the dots. And we we're like, well, who are those organizations? And they would name specific organizations. And I said, well, well, what do they do and how do they do it? And no one could answer that question in a definitive way. Everyone had a different description of the role of intermediaries or what they do and how they do it. And so we thought, well, one thing that we can do, maybe low-hanging fruit, is try to answer that question, right? No one has actually fully answered that question. The work is not new. These organizations have been around for years, decades. And so literally, my first set of investments were around understanding who these organizations are, what they do, how they do it, and how they drive systems change in order to drive student outcomes. And we found that at the core, what we realized, these organizations, what they all had in common, whether they were state-based, regional-based, whether they were youth-led organizations, employer-led organizations, nonprofit organizations, community-based organizations, the things they had in common were that, one, they were all very much focused on an equity goal. Every one of these organizations had identified some systemic inequities and realized that was a population or series of populations in their community that were being left out of opportunity. And so these organizations were the champions for elevating a shared equity goal around those who have been most and historically marginalized. 
The other thing we realized is that these organizations were conveners and they were very much focused on bringing K-12 and post-secondary actors as well as employers to the table to have a conversation around how can we create pathways and more equitable pathways and expand pathways so that more students and more learners and early workers will have access to those pathways. Beyond elevating a shared equity goal and being masterful conveners in many ways, we realized they're strategic at brokering relationships. Like These organizations knew how to foster meaningful conversation and facilitate meaningful conversation to really get to the core. What were the barriers that were keeping learners and early workers out of opportunity? And they were willing. They were the actors in an ecosystem that were willing to have those hard conversations and put themselves at the center of facilitation. So those are some of the things that we noticed early on. And I would say what's most exciting is knowing where we were 40 years ago, where we didn't know much about who these organizations were. Now we know that there are about 190 of them across the country. The reality is if we want to see more access, more availability of quality labor market aligned pathways for all students, specifically those who've been most historically marginalized, then the reality is then we need to build the infrastructure to continue to support these organizations, build their capacity elevate their presence, amplify their voice, amplify the stories of what they've done and what they're doing. But for intermediaries in the education and employment pathway space, we would not see equitable pathways at scale. Otherwise, the system actors are not as motivated, incentivized to show up in different ways. Are some system actors doing it? Absolutely, across the country. But having an intermediary partner in the mix actually helps them accelerate and advance their own goals but also having another partner that can really drive that capacity and build, help them build their capacity to do that work is incredibly necessary. So for us, we're excited to see our from two, but it's only been four years and there's so much more that we need to do and there's so much more that we can invest in. So I'm looking forward to 40 more years. I love that. Bring on the 40. Bring on the- <laughs> <laughs> I love hearing that even you were seeing that there's been an evolution over time of what you've seen in the field, who you've seen activated, who you see being activated around this work. And one of the things that's been important for us, right, is to push the folks who've been a part of this work to show up as both leaders and learners, which is really hard. It takes work and there's there's a lot of commitment there. And so, Amy, building on the foundation of what Issa just laid out, these intermediaries are serving critical roles, particularly when it comes to centering equity. And I'm curious what you're seeing as you look across a national landscape, the conversations that you're a part of or a party to. What is, what's the conversation emerging around what it takes and what it really looks like to center equity in pathways systems? Well, and as I think about the role of intermediaries, it's an interesting one because with my vantage point now, having the honor of serving in the role that I'm in, we at the federal level think about systems as being kind of state education agencies, state higher education agencies and P-12 ones, as well as kind of local education agencies and higher education systems. And in the ed sector, our minds are oriented towards the system as it is without seeing the full ecosystem of partners who are essential to advancing the work. So I joined the administration because I'm really committed to the vision that we hold to blur the lines, if you will, between secondary, post-secondary and the world of work to really think about how we de-silo and lift up, as I mentioned previously, the interdependence of education, workforce development and economic development. And when we think about where our young people are living, how our communities are composed, the role of intermediaries is essential and it has not been a clear one 
I would say, from many perspectives. I've really been appreciating understanding how to systematize things through the existing systems as they are, while also making sure that we're engaging, activating, and providing supports to organizations such as intermediaries to help be the glue in the system, to help be the connective tissue, to help connect and convene and provide the vision and voice and all the things that we know intermediaries do. And so I've really enjoyed seeing how important it is to ensure that intermediaries and the intermediary functions are core to driving and delivering high-quality, equity-driven career and college pathways systems. What I love about the world of career and technical education and Perkins 5 is we have built into it this fundamental focus on equity and on equity gaps with respect to populations, with respect to non-traditional participation in the labor market. And we are now much more comfortable in, I think, as a nation in the career pathway space talking about equity. I think we have more data than we ever have before in understanding the challenges that are before us. But if I'm being real, like we still as a nation haven't moved the needle much since, you know, 30 years ago or longer in many of the equity gaps that we still face today. And it's not just the P-12 system responsible. It's not just higher education. It's not just other education and training partners. It's not just business and industry. It's the whole of us. And I feel like the intermediaries really help to lift up and connect the whole of us and that interdependence that ultimately is only going to help our young people thrive. I am hopeful and determined that we are transitioning from admiring the problem and the, the challenges and the gaps that we've seen for decades to really moving into a space of reimagining what's possible in the career and college pathways world. And I have to say, I went into the pandemic with a lot of trepidation on so many fronts, but foremost in my mind was concerned that young people would be even more marginalized from the labor market and our equity gaps would deepen and widen, which they did in many respects. But what I'm holding on to is the disruption that that engendered, I think, sparked in many people and in many education systems the notion that there has to be a better way. Like if ever there's an opportunity for us to reimagine how we're preparing all young people to have successful, rewarding, joyful futures, that time is now. Like let's rethink the business of schooling. Let's rethink how we connect education and work. Let's rethink how intermediaries bring together diverse stakeholders in any given ecosystem to like set a goal that's bigger than any one entity, but that all see themselves reflected in. So I see a lot of potential and a lot of momentum in the right direction and a lot of hope and possibility. It's no secret that I share a bias toward reimagination and really taking a step back and seeing what it would look like to radically transform these systems and really reimagine from the ground up what they could look like. And Isa, I'm curious What's the thing that we need to get right if we don't want to sit here 30 years from now having this conversation saying, wow, we really missed the mark? What's something that you feel is really critical that we double down on right now, next 12, 18 months, because a moment might pass and we might miss this chance for the truly reimagined system and a, a real centering of equity and design and experience and outcome as we think about the lived experience of young people? It's one of many things, but I actually think it's one of the most important, if not the most important thing, is centering young people and engaging young people in this work. I think it's incredibly important to, if we want to rethink school or rethink pathways and rethink what does it mean to prepare young people for the future, then we need to have young people at the table as 
co-creators, co-crafters, co-designers, co-implementers, co-executors. If we want to see something different, then we're going to have to do some things differently. And that means that we're going to have to be comfortable working alongside young people and creating spaces and tables for them to sit alongside of us to really not just uncover the problem because they know it all too well. That's the problem, right? So we're not trying to re-traumatize them. I mean, they know it all too well. They're in these systems. They're living it every day. They're having to face the day-to-day of trying to navigate their current existence as well as thinking about what's next. We need to really engage them in the solutions and really ask them, like, how do they envision their future? What is the future that they see for themselves? What do they want for their lives, for their families? I mean, we did that at the start of our strategy. We started with interviewing young people across the country. In many cases, they they had really clear solutions on this is what I want to see for myself. In other cases, it's very tactical, like stop using the word job and use the term career. There were some things that they told us very specifically that they wanted us to do and consider in the work, and they wanted to be part of the process. And I think as we think about this work moving forward, it's adults who are getting in the way of really thinking differently and thinking bold. And so things we can do is partner with youth development organizations and agencies. They exist at the national level, global level, and they exist at the local level. And these organizations are made up of people, professionals who have studied and spent the time to understand how to work with and create with young people. There are people who specialize in this. Invite them to the table, have a conversation with them and ask them, how can we partner and work together to engage young people in the process of designing more equitable pathway program? What does that even look like? What does that even mean to a young person? So if we start to see young people as experts and stop engaging them in extractive ways, then I think we would have different results, right? We'd come up with different programs. We've come up, we'll come up with different solutions. We'd probably assess the programs and solutions very differently because young people have different values aligned to what's meaningful to them and what's meaningful to their communities and their families. And if we just included them as partners in the work, I think we'd see different outcomes exponentially. I truly believe that we'd see different outcomes very quickly. Nothing about us without us. Yes. Amy, what would you add to what Issa's talking about here as we think about what should we really be prioritizing as we think about centering racial equity in our education and career pathways work at scale? It does get back to putting youth voice at the center. I really appreciate you raising that, Issa. That's fantastic. And Gen Z has such a powerful voice and such a powerful perspective. They have a vision for who they are and where they want to go. All of our young people do. And we need to better listen to them and and create systems that are responsive to their needs while also connecting them with the incredible opportunities our labor market's providing. I think about the investing in America work and the trillions of dollars and the like economy shifts that are tremendous and on their way. And are we really preparing young people to lead our future, to lead the economy as it changes due to the incredible investments that we're making in new and growing fields that many young people may not even be aware of the career opportunities therein? So how are we preparing our system to really stay connected to not just the world as it is, but the world that is coming so that our young people can have the skills and have the abilities to navigate and make their own choices about who they want to be and how they want to be in the world. The other thing I would add is that I still struggle as I travel the country with hearing different people's, even the best intentioned, most committed leaders' mindsets about career 
pathways, about career and technical education, about the role of community colleges, which frankly are power hubs that all entities plug into, about the role of intermediaries. And it's still perceived in many minds as a step back, especially for us from communities of color, losing ground on the equity front. My parents fought so hard to go to college themselves. They had that four-year college mentality for me. And anything less than that feels like a loss. And so how do we transform mindsets and frankly, transform outcomes so that should young people pursue something in the sub-baccalaureate space, in the space that doesn't require a four-year degree. So we're looking at like workforce credentials, two-year degrees, other certifications, registered apprenticeship. Like there are multiple high-quality pathways in this space. But we need to, on our end, as systems builders, as funders, as policymakers, design systems such that those do actually lead to rewarding career pathways that lead to lifelong economic and social mobility. So I often use the term like no wrong door, no dead end. Any pathway we build, we have to make sure that it's full of endless potential and opportunity for young people. And how do we work as a nation on combating the mindsets and the inadvertent blinders or stigma that people may still hold about such things who may perceive career pathways or CTE as a lesser than option rather than a first-in-class incredible choice to supercharge futures when in fact that's indeed what it is. And how do we push on this as a systems change driver? So when we think about reimagining education, we at the Department of Education recently launched a new initiative for transforming high schools called Unlocking Career Success, in which we want all high school students, not just those in great CTE programs or fortunate enough to be connected to the right teacher or the right people in their lives who are connecting them to the right opportunities, but every single high school student. So it's not happenstance. It's not demography, where their school is located. But every student has access to accomplish four things while still in high school. So we want them to earn college credits through dual enrollment. We want them to engage in real-world, hands-on, work-based learning in workplace settings that's intergenerational with professionals who honor their expertise and who connect them with social capital and help them learn and grow. We want them to earn their first industry credentials so they have some confidence to broker their skills in the marketplace. And we want them and their families to have real kind of information in their hands, college and career advising, guidance, navigation systems, supports over time, not just a one and done career interest survey, but something that's iterative and developmental and helps young people reflect on who they are and where they're going over a period of time, even to and through post-secondary. And so we're thinking about an all-means-all strategy and, and want to open the doors wide so that as we're thinking about reimagining school, we reimagine it to be more community-connected, to be more career-connected, so that every single student, regardless of their educational trajectory after high school, has some grounding in, in the world of work and in their sense of self and their sense of purpose as it connects to their futures. So I would push on the all-means-all and the equity mindset challenges that we're, we're still facing across the country. Thank you for that, Amy. So final word moment here. I'd like to ask each of you to make your thinking visible for us. So I want you to as a construct, I used to think X, now I think Y. It's clear you've both been at this work for a long while. You are both deeply invested in this space deeply invested in the key questions on the table that this body of work has sought to address. And so would love for you to think about the arc of your own personal and professional journey to get here. And you're in a different place now. And so would love for you to take on that, that question. I used to think that 
philanthropy's role was simply as funder in this work. And, you know, our role was just to show up well as a funder, but a funder partner in the work. Now, I know after having invested in this work in a number of years now, that we actually have a responsibility that's much more expansive than that. And so beyond providing resources, like we have a responsibility to help democratize information and research. We have a responsibility to help facilitate partnerships and cross-sector partnerships. We have an opportunity to be a convener nationally, regionally. We have a responsibility to incubate new ideas, new programs, to help create proof points of what's possible. We have a responsibility to amplify the good things that are happening across the country, the good work that's happening across the country. And we have a responsibility to really be bold and stand behind our equity objectives. So we really have a responsibility to show up differently and to truly show up as a partner, not a transactional partner, but truly as a partner to the practitioners, the policymakers, the youth, the communities, the families that are living, doing this, thinking about this, strategizing every day. We have a responsibility to show up differently and more intentionally and more strategically. And that's something that I would say has really shifted over the last few years of thinking more expansively around my role as a funder in this work and a role of philanthropy and a role of national philanthropy specifically. Nana, thank you. Amy? I kind of want to build off what Issa was saying. And as you may know, this is my first time in federal service. And I used to think that federal policy was so many layers removed from practice on the ground that that it, it couldn't necessarily drive the transformation that I hope to see in our career and college pathway space. I used to think that the world of federal policy had big levers, but not nuance and creativity and innovation. And now I think that I have the huge honor of working in partnership with the Departments of Labor and Commerce and other sister agencies across the federal family, working in partnership with the White House, working in partnership with Secretary Cardona, who has centered career pathways as his vision for how he wants to transform education. And as he thinks about how he wants the Department of Education and our entire education system to, as he says, raise the bar and lead the world and his vision, of course, we want young people to achieve academic excellence. We want to boldly improve learning conditions and consider the mental health and well-being of our young people and consider the needs we have to strengthen our educator pipeline. But he really is leaning into creating pathways for global engagement in ways that I've never seen a secretary of education nor a federal administration do previously. That's what keeps me excited and committed to this work is I get to work across silos and sectors in ways that I did not see possible previously. I see that the whole really is greater than the sum of its parts and that we have to move to a both and. It has to be both great for young people. We have to be grounded in the needs of young people. And what we do has to be great for our communities and our economy and our employers that are facing a talent shortage and this labor market that is dynamic and quickly evolving. We have to both think about the systems as they are, and we have to think about 
what could be and push ourselves to move beyond the constraints of how we have always done business in education or the world of work to reimagine how we might do more and do better by restructuring and reimagining how we partner in supporting young people into adulthood. I continue to stand in my hope and optimism for which I'm hardwired. And because of the pandemic and because of where we are as a nation and the incredible opportunities before us, that we will continue to push ourselves and one another to continue to grow together so that we are indeed stronger, so that diversity is our strength, so that equity is the grounding for all that we do, because we know that's what's going to be best for our people and best for our families and our communities. Thank you both for, for walking into that space and filling it up. I respect and admire you both so much, your voices, your leadership, and it's been a real privilege and a pleasure to work and learn alongside of you in this collective work and what I'd call a provocation about building equitable pathways. So thank you both for your big P partnership, Isa, and for the bold passion and curiosity you bring to all that you do. Thank you both so much. It's a joy and an honor. Thank you, Kyle, for this opportunity. And Isa, it's so wonderful to talk with you. I so appreciate all that you're doing and and the role that you hold is so critical to advancing the sector. Well, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to work with great people. So thank you both for collaborating with me on this. So more to come. Today's conversation has me reflecting on all the work that's been done, the progress that's been made, and the learning that has been codified over the last five years in collaboration with the leaders and partners who have engaged in this community of practice. I also stand firmly in the idea that our work is far from done. We're not even close. Truly scaling equity and pathways systems will require ongoing investment, deep commitment, radical collaboration, and a willingness to welcome disequilibrium in the work of systems transformation. But we know enough to be dangerous, and we know enough about the direction we need to move in to get started. Issa reminded us about how well-positioned intermediaries are to elevate shared equity goals, lean into being master conveners, and continue to call for inclusivity in design and broker strategic and powerful relationships. At the end of the day, they are the organizations pushing us as a field to have the tough conversations that will change our education to career pathway systems for the better, push the status quo, and as Amy put it, move us from admiring the problem to actively working to close equity gaps in our systems so that all young people can live into their best possible futures. Be sure to check out the show notes to learn more about the focus of Amy and Issa's national work and their commitments. Thanks for listening to Building Equitable Pathways, brought to you by JFF. Together, we're driving transformation of the American workforce and education systems to achieve equitable economic advancement for all. To learn more about Building Equitable Pathways and our coalition of partners, visit us online at jff.org. And we want to hear from you and have you join the conversation. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. This is Kyle Hartung from JFF, signing off until next time.